Hello and welcome to What Goes Around. My name is Deb Grant. And my name is Eamon Murtagh. And Deb Grant, why don't you tell them what's on the show today? We have the wonderful DJ Food on the show who is uh, an absolute walking encyclopedia about all kinds of music and art and musical ephemera. It's a really fascinating conversation. And we also talked to the fascinating Judith Owen about the women who brought sex and drugs and good times into popular music. That can't be a bad thing either. Before all that, we talk about Deb's t-shirts, because you've got to get the important stuff out of the way, haven't you? Five. Dearest Debbie Grant. Debbie? <laughs> <laughs> That's me. Dearest Deb. Um, what is going around in your world today? Uh, I have been thinking a lot about band t-shirts because I've always had quite a few, but my collection has um, increased somewhat over the past few months. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because I watched three burly men dragging all of my clothes from one house to the other when I moved to Manchester and I thought, yeah, I need more. <laughs> I, need more. <laughs> I, need, I need a back-breaking <laughs> amount of T-shirts. Yes. I, want, I want to see them sweat this yeah, time. Exactly. I want to see exactly. them really work. Quite enough. Um, I don't know. I just keep, I think it's, it might also be, be because of targeted ads. Like there's all these T-shirt sites that follow me around the internet now. Um, yeah, once you buy from one, then suddenly every time you log on, there's an advert saying, I mean, I ended up buying a Brian Eno t-shirt at two in the morning about Ooh, three weeks ago. <laughs> maybe I need a Brian Eno t-shirt. What does it look I'll like? I'll send you the link, darling. I'll send you the link. It's very nice. Um, but yeah, although I did um, I did get linked to a, a vintage band t-shirt shop the other day, which had for like £250 uh, a 90s um, Joy Division um watch unknown pleasures t-shirts oh, it's just right, like what right, right. who would know that that's <laughs> yeah I a mean, very valuable vintage say, yeah. t-shirt i mean come on um but yeah so i have all these t-shirts and uh, i need to stop buying them really i've got two johnny winter t-shirts um i now have a john prine t-shirt which is my absolute favorite hey, that's the, the gawping from people who recognize and like it's a really I don't know, it's a very cool t-shirt. It's got his name and like a picture of his face on it. And like the the reactions I've had have been so nice. I feel like, you know, th- throughout history, wearing a t-shirt of a band you love is like such a wonderful way to connect with strangers. Yeah, you know? speed dating for friends, isn't it? It really is. Like, I mean, maybe this is the key to me making friends in Manchester, just parade yeah. around in my jumpers. Listen, if your t shirt game is strong, they will come. Exactly. <laughs> so, I, um, yeah. I, I did a thing with uh, my wife, uh, Lucy, is a screen printer. And a couple of years ago, uh, she said, Look, I'll make you a t shirt because you need some new t shirts. <laughs> and so I, um, I said, Okay, fine. And I went through the record collection, I found a couple of things. Um, I got the Conk logo mm. from the 80s band in New York, Conk. I got that done up. And then I got a Moody Man t-shirt. one. <gasps> yeah, I've got a Conk t-shirt. And mm. the thing is, I wore it for a year and a half and no one knew who it was. And then I went into the <laughs> into that record shop, um, Prime Cuts, oh, yeah. on Gloucester Road that we went, we went visited for the podcast at yeah. Christmas. And uh, first thing Mike said, he goes, oh, I like your Conk t-shirt. Don't yeah. see many of those. So I was like, yeah. Oh, can you send me a picture? I need to see this. Can you send me a yeah, picture? Yeah, well, I will. I will do that. I'll, 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 I'll link a picture in the uh, in the in the show notes. Yeah. But um, it's a really nice thing. The other thing I did this big because you couldn't buy at the time Moody Man t-shirts. Mm. The Moody Man, the Detroit DJ uh, dude, um, 
and he's great and I love his logo so I, we, we blew it up real big and put it on t-shirt and then I went to We Out Here last year and honestly we couldn't walk 25 steps without someone saying where'd you get that <laughs> Yes, that's the thing. It's like, like you say, it's an instant friend maker. And I do the same thing. I saw some crusty dude in a power trip t-shirt um, mm-hmm. the other day, and oh, you know, I had to yeah. stop. And, yeah, had to stop. Yeah, exactly. Because I'm a metalhead now. I had to stop and and uh, compliment the t-shirt. You know, it's like it's such a it's such a fast track way of of you know signalling to people that you're their tribe. Yeah, yeah. I, I, did you see that wonderful thing uh, on the internet the other week? There was an Instagram story of a girl in Canada. Uh, she's like a 20-year-old girl or something, and she had a Rush t-shirt on, like mm-hmm. an old Rush t-shirt that she'd, she'd one of her favourite things. And that usual thing that happens from boorish men. Name five songs. Yeah, name me five <laughs> albums. You're not a real fan. Ugh. And all that sort of stuff. And she, she just turned around and reeled them all off. And then she went, if you want, I can put them into chronological order. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously sent this guy packing. Anyway, so she... Then put that up on her Instagram with a little thing. And people went mental for it because, you know, it is like the most annoying, crass male. I, I male remember. Thing. I remember I had a, I mean, I still have it, a, a Dizzy Gillespie for President t-shirt. Um, yeah. And I put a photo of me. I was just out and about somewhere and I was wearing it. And um, my ex had taken a photo of me and I put it up on Twitter. And some random stranger was just like, oh, what even is this? Dizzy Gillespie for president? Like, he's a jazz musician. He wouldn't make a good president. What are you even talking about? Do you even know his music? And I said, just send him a Wikipedia link. I mean, it has its own fucking Wikipedia page, the fact that he ran for president. And then he was like, um, oh yeah, he also said like, and uh, in Britain, we don't have presidents. And I wrote back and I was like, I'm Irish. (laughs) Yeah, so why did you just go off? It's so painful. It's just like, what the fuck? You think I'm just wearing this T-shirt? Because I, I mean, like, even if yeah. I was just wearing it for fun, you can fuck off. Yeah, what? Who made you the T-shirt police? Totally. Sake. But it's it's always, I mean, I'm sure it doesn't happen to you, Eamon. It's definitely a women no, thing. No, it's, it's definitely a boorish man thing yeah. to women. Uh, yeah. You know, and I, it comes from when Topshop started selling Ramones T-shirts yeah. and every everyone under 20 had a Ramones T-shirt for a summer or two. Mm. But really... Just let it go. It's not that important. Do you know yeah. what I mean? The brilliant thing about this Rush girl is that she, she put her thing up on Instagram and loads of people were going, yeah, go on, girl, well done, well done for sitting him down and all this sort of stuff. And then Rush contacted her. <gasps> yeah, and they said, oh, we love your story. Uh, give us your address. And they sent her a massive goodie bag of oh. amazing Rush stuff, like CDs and concert stubs and T-shirts oh, and all sorts. so cool. That guy must be burning <laughs> <laughs> i love that to be fair the guy who stepped to me on twitter did apologize twice Good. so <laughs> and do you know what i'd rather have had fucking dizzy gillespie for president than half of the other ones uh, yeah well exactly yeah exactly but um yeah depressing yeah let's wear t-shirts um let's wear t-shirts and tell people what music we like and make friends with them yes i want a con yeah. t-shirt can lucy help me out with that I think we could probably probably put one together. Yeah. It's so obscure, though. Honestly, I've been so just. I kind of thought it'd be the sort of thing that every week to someone would say, "Oh, cock, nice." But it's literally been one person. I've had it three <laughs> years now. <laughs> 
Today we are delighted to welcome singer-songwriter Judith Owen to the podcast. Judith is a phenomenal blues and jazz singer with a new album coming out called Come On and Get It. It's a celebration of the wild and irrepressible spirit that female jazz and blues singers of the past embodied. It's tempting to think the fiercely independent female singer is a relatively modern construct, but that simplified notion severely underestimates the musical tradition which Judith Owen has been celebrating. It is therefore our pleasure to talk to Judith about the strong women of jazz, blues and soul. So welcome to the podcast, Judith. Hello, Eamon. It's a pleasure to be on. Well, it's lovely to have you on. When, when we got in contact, uh, there was a little bit of bumps explaining about how the album came about and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And what really interested me was the idea of um, women who were taking control of their sexuality, their place in the world... You know, and being as strong and as forward thinking as they possibly could be for their time. Because, you know, a lot of people kind of see like your your Megan the Stallion as like a very modern thing. But actually, this is as old as time, isn't it? It is as old as time. And this was, you know, these songs are 70 plus years old. So this is so much more adventurous than uh, Megan the Stallion um, could could ever be. I mean, she's fantastic. Don't get me wrong; it's it's, mm. it's wonderful and and it's thrilling. But these these women were singing these songs and celebrating female sexuality and empowerment, and they were for a nanosecond. Because I'm dealing with women who are are mostly not all, but mostly forgotten or or unsung, mm. um, and that's one of the reasons that I wanted to shine the light back on their music. Well, these women started in church, you know, they were always playing music, piano, nice let girls. Mm. They, you, you were meant to play piano in church, that was the job. And then they all went to the dark side, thank God. They all <laughs> went to the dark side and realized, you know, Nellie Lutcher was eight years old. I'm, you know, I live in, in New Orleans and in London. And uh, north of me up in uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana, an eight-year-old Nellie Lutcher was playing piano in church. And wow. at, when she was 12, Ma Rainey, blew into town the, the famous mm. absolutely filthy ma rainey fabulous and her uh, her pian- pianist had gone on a bender uh, and, and and was missing in action and so 12 year old nelly lutcher first gig first serious gig outside the church is playing piano for ma rainey wow. that's my kind of woman these yeah. weren't your ella fitzgeralds or your oh, no. sarah washington's tell us more about some of the names and the people on this album well, it all started with Nelly, fine brown frame. And it's about a, a woman lusting over the best looking man she's ever seen in her entire life, you know, and physically, I mean, truly adoring his body. Yeah. This really is out there, you know, I mean, this is extraordinary to hear this um, from that period. She came to London, as many African-American artists, many black jazzers had to, because in Europe and in Britain, there was a level playing field. Mm. You weren't coming in, you know, uh, in America, pre-civil rights, you were going through the kitchen. In in Europe, you were a star. So when Nellie Lutcher came to town, she was filling the Prince of Wales Theatre and being mobbed by her audience and needing a police escort to get back to the hotel. That's the difference. Yeah. And so Fine Brown Frame, Real Gone Guy, these these were hit songs, imagine. I mean, it's extraordinary, really. Nellie Lutcher, Julia Lee, the Kansas City queen of double entendre and innuendo, my favourite things. I mean, mm-hmm. what Brit doesn't love that? Exactly. Um, Mary Lou Williams. But these ladies were dealing with risque songs that often would not even be played on 
Black Radio. Uh, Julia Lee's songs, uh, Snatch and Grab It, My Man Stands Out, King Size Papa. <laughs> I mean, just bring them on, baby. I love it. Bring them on. <laughs> uh, King Size Papa. I'll get this line. This is my favourite line of all these songs. I've got a man who's almost eight foot tall, four foot shoulders and that ain't all. I take the door off. I take the door off the hinges when my baby comes to call. I mean, yes. this is one of the greatest lines I get to sing. I was... I was featuring women who should be known, who were, who were beloved by people like Bill Evans and Miles Davis and Dizzy and Charlie Parker. I mean, they, they mentored these men, but they were also on a level pegging with these men mm. uh, who were adored by Nat King Cole, who, who were looked upon as being absolute stars. And yet, of course, because they were women, were seen more as being novelty acts. These women were leading with sex and humour and joy. I mean, they are bottled joy. The sort of jazz and blues female singers that we're more familiar with, often they came as an appendage to a big band. Oh, I love you, Eamon. You are speaking my language. Yeah, so they were always... You'd always see them on the bill, but they would be like... You know, like a like a hat that was put on top of another set of performers. Do you know, it's like an extra side thing. And Whereas, if I might be so bold, I would say that they were decorative. Yes, as much yeah, as they were that. exquisite. Yeah. And I mean, and you know, Ella wasn't. Ella was always Ella. That was it. But so many band leaders, the female band leaders, were decoration. They were they were great singers, mm-hmm. but they were seen in that way and these women in that man's world these women were at their piano and they were leading their own destiny weren't they and that's the difference oh god yes and of course you know you can't really put you can't put enough emphasis on the fact that um you know you're megan the stallions you're you're um miss kitten or any any of the modern stars they're doing their thing and they're still fighting because the patriarchy is real and it's all over the place but in those days completely Oh my God! You know, you, you couldn't own property. You couldn't do so many things. You couldn't go right. anywhere without your father's consent, or you know, if That's you correct. were you were basically property. So yeah, these women weren't just sort of like talking the talk. They were definitely walking the walk and going right yes, up against were. the whole of society, weren't they? They were, and um, and with, in every case of these women, they were supporting their entire families. Mm. They were. They were literally making the money, doing it all, bring it, bringing it all. Um, Nellie Lutcher brought all her family from, from uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana to, to Hollywood. Every one of them. Wow. She supported everybody. They were all incredible women. And then somebody like Peggy Lee, who is famous. You have to look to Peggy Lee to understand that in a man's world, at a time when women were seen as just being as, as much decoration as anything else, that woman had her hands in every single aspect of her career. She chose the songs, she wrote the songs, she produced them. Every single aspect, her artwork, everything was under her finger. Mm. And that to me is so extraordinary and wonderful for all of us. Yeah, and I think, you know, if anyone kind of doubts this, and we've interviewed, we're always trying to get more women on the podcast because, you know, the imbalance in the music industry is just so obvious um yeah and a lot of the women we have had on on the podcast who people like the br- brilliant rebellious women like lydia lunch uh delberte mickey berenia we've had these these women on and they've all said the same thing every single one yes. of them has always said you know like you can be 
you a you have to be in charge of what you do because otherwise yes. you are kind of painted into a little corner and you know the expectations of other people are placed on you so if you don't take complete control of what you're doing you are not going to be able to express yourself but b you have this trouble that even when you are doing your stuff even when you've made your album and the music and the art is out there you still have people in in the music business pressuring you you know it's a thin end of a wedge but you know it can start off with like you know yeah you know what i'm talking about I absolutely do because I started, you know, I'm, I'm, um, you know, I describe myself as being, uh, you know, I'm a striking woman and, and um, I, I should not really have anything to worry about. But I got to tell you that since I was a kid, first starting in this business, I was being asked questions by people, by executives in record labels, how are your legs? And I'm oh. not joking. This is the the vibe that you get it's like so what are you what are you saying what are you standing for you know i mean like if you cut your hair off and maybe um you know looked like you're angry at the piano no that's not who i am you see that's not who i am that's been done mm. and that's not who i am so and it's always trying to fit you into what they the mold they want you to be but it always comes down to why are you covering up your beauty why can't you just be sexy it's like yeah but listen if I want to lead that way, and if that's how I am, you know, that's 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 what I'm bringing. Great. You cannot force a person to be what they're not, or rather, to behave in the way that is not natural to them. It hurts me, having experienced myself, to see other women go through this and to mm. be, to be uh, 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 believing in the in the lie. You know, the myth, the lie. I guess the easy bit to believe is that you get pressured to be slim and to dress certain ways and all that sort of stuff. But there's a second sort of slightly more hidden tranche to this kind of misogyny, which is what happens when things have been released? Who gets asked yeah. to appear at the festival? How does your record get out to the public? You know, is it pushed in the same way as other things? Because, you know, time after time after time, you hear of these artists who do the work, who, who do everything right and, and keep hold of their stuff. And then they still find themselves in this position. You look at almost any festival around the world count up how many women there are and how many men there are and you'll soon notice quite a striking difference in those numbers it's shocking i i, I mean and there was a uh, i know that there was a festival recently and i can't remember what it was but it was very female heavy and it was and and then it was kind of like oh my you know the headlines were oh it's just like just nothing but women it's like you know what <laughs> Which, Why it's not? about bloody time <laughs> yeah. we had a day when it was women i mean all women yes i i agree with you completely and what i would say to young artists and i have taken this road and this is what these women this is why they're role models to me their lives were hard their roads were difficult blossom Deary had six uh jazz cult albums that only became hugely successful after the fact on verve mm. and the rest of her life she was playing and i saw her at 80 playing i was lucky to see her i was lucky to see nelly lutcher at 80 as well i was so fortunate to see both these women at the end of their careers and it's all i personally ever wanted to be i wanted to, sp to spend my entire life being a musician yeah. the road is harder when you are unique and singular and you are saying something different from the quick sell yeah. but you will last 
Well, you definitely do them justice. It's a, it's a wonderful album. I really wish you all Thank the best you. with it. And I know every time I see a, a you know, a Lil' Kim or a, a Megan Thee Stallion or Christina Aguilera or any, any of these modern stuff, a little light's going to go on in the back of a lot of heads now and thinking, well, actually, you know, this, is, this isn't necessarily new, but it probably is still something we need to be banging on about. They were doing it long since, but not just that. When you look at the Megan oh. Thee Stallion, I want to call myself Judith the Pit, the Pit Pony. When <laughs> you see, that's what I want. When you see these women and they got it all going on, but they've also got it all hanging out. Also remember, this was done long ago, but it was done fully clothed yeah. and it was just as sexy. Well, I wish you all the very best with it. And thank you so much for talking to us today, Judith. I think it's uh, going to oh, be a God, really... Oh, God, it's been an absolute pleasure, Eamon. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's a really interesting conversation to have. Thank you so much. I'm going to be coming back, actually, and doing a show at um, Hoburn Live for a, a Christmas special on uh, December 10th. So you must come down because it will be the gentleman callers. When it came to, you know, naming my glorious band, these New Orleans stars who literally have this sound in their bones... I had to call them something that made them like, you know, that I was the queen of them. So I went all very Jane Austen on them and I decided to call them my gentleman callers. Which I, <laughs> I, I, I think is the British twist, you know, on that same thing. You know, it's like, oh, my gentleman caller is coming. They're glorious. And, and honestly, the minute the minute you hear them play, you, you have no doubt that this is the authentic, real thing. That sounds yeah. brilliant. He's got such a brown frame how in the world could be his name he looks good to me and all i can see is his fine brown frame how long have you been around mr when did you hit this big toe? i want to scream ow because i've never seen such a fine brown frame what we're gonna, what we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back, way back, back into time. That's right. Name that tune. Name that tune. Uh, uh. Our guest today is one of the UK's most respected and revered DJs and producers. Kevin Folks, a.k.a. DJ Food, a.k.a. Strictly Kev, has been creating, curating and celebrating music for over 30 years. His story begins with Cold Cut and their seminal Ninja Tunes label, for whom Kev provided the breaks and beats that became the staple food of DJs and producers throughout the 90s. His funky cut-and-paste sound set the scene for the early 90s funk and break scene and foreshadowed the world of trip-hop without ever being so po-faced. His enduring love for music is there for all to see, through his remixes for the likes of Matt Johnson's The The and his fan-like devotion to Trevor Horn's seminal Zang Tum Tum label that brought us the likes of Frankie Goes to Hollywood and The Art of Noise. Always keen to stretch the possibilities of DJing, he's branched out into cutting video and, frankly, mind-bending quadraphonic deck manipulations. He's a true music fan and a perfect guest for our show, and we're delighted to welcome Strictly Kev to our show. Hello, Kevin. Hi, Eamon. That's a lovely thing. Can I use that as my bio? Yeah, please do. Please do. <laughs> we do have the running joke that quite often there is one clunking, like, wrongness in any intro that I do. But I've, I've had a good run. I think the last that, three have been all right. That was pretty good, I have to say. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a there's 
there's always more, isn't there? But um, oh yeah, yeah there's like always loads more, especially with a curio like yours. I mean, you have been playing out now and, and cutting up and remixing stuff for 35 years, something like that? Pretty much, yes. Uh, what, where, where are we? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I started in 1985. That's when I, well, I mean, I started to learn to DJ in 1985, but my first professional gigs were in the early 90s. You know, we're coming up to 30 years of hmm. professional gigs now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it, it was a really great time, I have to say. I mean, I bought a lot of your records let, let me say okay. that i have a i have an intertune section and at least half of it is is stuff with your name on okay so, well uh, i mean i must i must just caveat one thing is that you know i i am dj food now but dj food back then was a amalgam of, of cold cut yes a yeah. guy called patrick carpenter pc and myself and uh various other collaborators um and i've kind of been doctor who likes of handed the mantle yeah well it's, you know for the for the last 25 years really but um uh, so yeah, some of that older stuff I wasn't involved in directly, but um, yeah, definitely had the name since the mid nineties. But the, you, the you did work with some fantastic names. I mean, the the whole refried food mm. uh, set of uh, releases just these were fantastic double pack albums mm. that were just remixed by everyone who was really cool on the scene at the time. And well, that I, was us just sitting down, you know, basically going, "Who do we like?" And, you know, let's just get them in and give them all of the back catalogue and, you know, let yeah. them go crazy. And then people like Square Pusher were quite new on the scene at that point and just completely remade the track into something his own. And, and you know, cl classic, some classic tracks came out of that. The Wagon Christ mix of Turtle Soup easily surpasses the original. You know? Yeah, I, I'm one of my favourites. I played it just last week, in fact, is the Ashley Beadle remix of Consciousness, which oh, is it. just... Sublime, of course, yeah. sublime. Another one of your guests as well. And on the on the on the less uh, highbrow tip, I have to say, I have had more fun with your little ten inch Mister Quick cuts the cheese oh, yeah. than almost <laughs> any other record I own. <laughs> There's a great um, Mister Quick is actually Peter Quick who runs Ninja, and mm. one of the lesser known facts is that his family make Quick's cheese. Oh wow! That's, so that's it's not just a, a cheeky. Cheeky name. It, it, it's a tea, cheeky double entendre. Love kind it. Of, um, title, but yeah, there is some relevance in it. I'm interested actually because we had uh, Jeff Barrow on the on the show the other day, yes. and I had a lovely chat with him, and uh, everything went very well. And then uh, I did an intro afterwards with Deb, and uh, I mentioned the T word trip hop in the. Yeah. I didn't mention it in the interview at all, but I said you know, and we talk about trip hop and all this sort of stuff. And he didn't like that. <laughs> he well, yeah. didn't like that at all. It, I was really interested because it, it's one of those labels, trip hop, that people take great umbrage to. But some people really love it. I think the punters really like it, but the people who get s sort of saddled with it seem very annoyed. How did you feel about it? Because the, all the Ninja Tune stuff was kind of before trip hop became a thing, but then it became sort of embroiled with it. Although yes. I always thought yes. you guys had a much more fun attitude i think we had us oh, we had a very fun attitude yeah it was definitely very um tongue-in-cheek a lot of the ninja tune stuff and i think maybe slightly more electronic a bit later on mm. i love the word trip hop personally and i love trip hop as a music whatever it's called um uh, you know however it manifests it's manifests itself but mm. the thing i take umbrage with is sort of what trip hop became it's kind of lazy byword for you know, slow down break beats with smoking yeah. samples and a bit of a jazz loop that's not really doing much. Um, 
my favourite trip hop is things like very early Wagon Christ, the Orbs first album is mm. actually quite trip hoppy in places, Major Force West, some of that crazy stuff they put out on Moax, mm. you know, actual psychedelic hip hop, you know, which is pretty much what trip hop is a byword for. Um, that sort of taking very cerebral samples and spoken word and electronics and mashing it all up with beats and you know a, a lot of it was a substitute for not having an MC you know, <laughs> really? at, at that point um, there weren't really that many good UK rappers it has to be said there were a few and but they were still really finding their vo voice you know with the exception of a few crews like maybe London Posse who yeah. kind of got a UK tint to their their vocals and later Roots Maneuver people like that yeah. you know in the 90s, there were, unless you wanted to collab with some American rappers, it wasn't going to sound too hot, has to be said. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, it's nice to hear someone who's who feels more at home with that, because uh, for me, it reminds me of just a really lovely time mm. where we, uh, you know, we, we raved hard during the night and we uh, chilled out during the day and listened to psychedelic trip hop. Exactly. Um, and that's where it came from as well. You know, um, in the early 90s, I was doing chill out parties. My first DJ gigs were chill out parties. And... I had to laugh when you were talking about chill out on one of the earlier episodes and I think was it Deb was saying just do a whole club as a chill out room and you were like no 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 there's a there's a time and a place and my first clubs were actual chill out clubs the whole club the whole club it was a tele it's called telepathic fish and they were in a squat they were in very squats so they started out in my flat actually in East Dulwich with my friends who I was living with um, and we had Mixed Master Morris, and at one point, Aphex Twin, this was how early it was in the 90s, wow. playing Chill Out all Sunday. Coming, So you'd come from the club on Saturday night, Sunday morning, and you'd come, the, the club would start at midday, and basically you'd chill out all afternoon and all night, and basically sit on sort of... Um, uh, like dodgy mattresses and stuff yeah, and Joe yeah. Muggs you know, yeah Joe, Joe Muggs, Muggs yeah, we were talking to him about it he, and he's, he, he's like he I, love, I love it just talking to some random person who turns out to be a brain surgeon from Hungary and a, and a wanton criminal from Edinburgh you know? when he was describing that gig that he went to that must have been one of my gigs because that's exactly what we had we mm. had dirty mattresses salvaged from the street in an old squat <laughs> in Brixton and it was literally that and Mixmaster Morris was on the decks and you know obviously it's when I kind of got my foot in the door with cold cut so yeah Matt Black played Matt Black I was actually doing visuals his first visual gigs as a VJ were at my my clubs well I'm quite interested to talk to you about that side of things because as well as being like you know a, a long-standing DJ and uh, a man of, of some skill on the vinyls you um you also sort of moved around in the circles of, of VJing a bit haven't you oh totally yeah yeah I mean I, I it, it took me a long while to dip my toe in the the water, so to speak, because I toured with Colcut in the 90s, obviously, and they were pioneers in that field with along with Ecstatic. Um, and I saw how much kit they had to take. Mm. We had a carnet at one point in the late 90s when we were touring the Letters Play album around the world, and it was something like 26 flight cases of, <laughs> of, of stuff that had to go through, the, you know, the airport every time. And, you know, we were literally touring a different city every day at points wow. in America and I just thought this isn't for me but it was so it was about 10 years later when Serato came out with their video scratch live mm. software which was basically you could do it on your own with a laptop and a, the right DJ mixer which turned your video your DJ mixer into a video mixer mm. um, and I kind of got on there we I did a four deck thing with uh, DK who was a solid steel 
producer I DJ with for 10 years. And we were the, I'm pretty much sure we were the first DJ duo to do a four turntable video scratch mix live in a club. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that uh, you guys and the Cold Cut guys uh, really opened that up. And it's still, because it is so difficult to do, there aren't that many people who actually can do it. You you occasionally get, you know, at a, at a bigger party, you'll get some nice projections that are being controlled. Yes. But they're, they're almost always kind of an afterthought or a, yeah. something separate, often being run by someone else completely. Exactly, exactly. Her uh, whole thing was that it can't look like a screensaver. Yeah, on. yeah. You know, it, this has to be syncopated to the music, which it required a hell of a lot of pre-production and editing for stuff but we were actually literally DJing live mp4 files at that point you know with the audio embedded so that if we scratched the deck the video scratched too amazing this was around 2008 and this was on four turntables with a video mixer you know um, combining the feed in the middle and we did a huge show in Coco with uh, Hextatic and I think at one point we did one with Bomb the Bass and it was are just amazing. We, they had a huge shards um webbed sort of screen that was in front of the, the stage, floor to ceiling. We were behind it and they were projecting onto this screen that was sort of semi-transparent. So depending what was on the screen, sometimes you could see us behind the screen sort of transparent through the, through the mesh. Amazing. Well, I, I, I recommend anyone, if they get the chance to go and see your kind of show, because it is, it's uh, mind-blowing on every level, audio and uh, and visual. So uh, I highly recommended that one. It must be such a lot of pre-production work. You must have to work so hard to even, yeah. even just setting it up must be. Yeah, yeah 90, 90% of it is sort of pre-edited stuff where you have to sit there and, you know, make a video sometimes for a track if it doesn't have a video or, or recut some visuals from somewhere else into a track and all sorts of things and... Yeah, and but that's I mean I I started digitally DJing in two thousand six I think with Serato um, after a record box got lost on the, on route to a gig in Ireland oh, I had to go and no, cannibalise no. a set together from the promoter's collection on the fly <laughs> which was yeah that's a skill um, but yeah uh, I just also I mean if there's one thing that lockdown taught us is that watching a DJ DJ is very very boring. Let's face it. Yeah. Well, I oh, often often ask for the the return of the days when the DJ is just hidden. Yeah. Because oh, <laughs> it, 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 you you look at each other then, and the party is yeah. so much better. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Well, well, yeah. When I first started, um, you know, clubbing and raving in the late eighties, we, we I'd go to places like Raw and Tottenham Court Road, and I could I couldn't even tell you where the DJ was. I think mm. they were up in some sort of pulpit above the the, the crowd, and everyone just was into their thing on the dance floor. You weren't facing a DJ. Uh, and, you know, it's, I don't want to get into that old man thing back in my day or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it's so different today. Absolutely. And I never became a DJ to stand on stage in front of people ever. I was <laughs> quite a shy guy at school. And, you know, the DJ stood at the back, especially mm. in hip hop, which is, you know, my first love of sort of DJing culture. And uh, the DJ was the sort of, you know, the B-side guy who might have his little moment to shine on the last track of the album and all that sort of stuff. You know? Yeah, yeah. But and uh, you, you yeah, were always changed that. <laughs> and you were always into the idea of taking pre-existing music and and making something else out of it. You know, you, yes. you, you were yes. definitely, you were not one to just play, you know, a selector standing there playing the hits. You were no. always trying to do something else with the music, weren't you? 
yeah it's always it's all about collage it's all about editing and it's you know the the basis of hip-hop is taking the best bits and making something new out of them and that's how i approach it at dj as a dj set just in a sort of wider spectrum it's a bit like the journeys by dj mix that i did with coca and you know that's an expansion of something like the lessons by double dean steinsky which were a huge influence on both coca and myself as a sort of cut up mega mix style thing you know when we mm. did Jones by DJ, much as we did with the Solid Steel radio show that we used to do, um, it was like, let's just do the best version of this radio show that we can do. Yeah, and uh, boy, did you hit the nail on the head uh, for me at that stage, because I saw that tour and it blew my tiny mind. Um, yeah, one of, the, one of the, the best mixes, I think, just for the first time I ever sat down and listened to it, one of the best mixes I ever heard was that, that first Journey by DJs. Because there was just... Uh, Everything at the time was uh, quite siloed. Do you know what I mean? It, it was just as things were beginning to sort of slip into new genres and, and yeah. things were beginning to separate out again after being squished together by Rave. And, absolutely, yes. And, and you guys just put it all in. You know, you absolutely. Well, well, that's the thing. Yeah. No, you're right, you're right. It's um, Unfortunately, as, as amazing as Rave was, it sort of streamlined parties partly to do with the style of music and the style of drugs as well, I'd imagine, in that everything basically became about that kind of music and there was eclecticism kind of went by the wayside, you know. Yeah. You went to an acid house party or you went to a funk party or you went to a, a hip-hop jam or something like that. And when we were DJing, you know, at Ninja Tune and our early parties, it was all about putting everything in and the same with the Solid Steel radio show. And we, you know, that we, we used to do that in chill-out rooms I remember some of my first gigs in Bristol and Lakota and places like that. And, you know, we were in the back room, Colcott were in the back room mm. doing four decks and CDs and we'd be playing everything from ambient to techno. And whilst in the front room, it was the main room was 4-4 four, four techno, banging yeah. techno yeah. house, you know. And that was the way it was until maybe the mid-90s when things started to come back. And also a lot of those CDs, especially the only journeys for DJs, they were house and techno mixes. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what made it stand out so much, is mm. it like... Because um, I've always had a wide taste, you know. What I mean, I've always liked lots of different things. I, I, I like this, like this podcast. We like we don't we don't talk about a type of music. We talk about music in general because I think it's as exciting listening to someone who's into heavy metal, you know, give you their enthusiasm as it is to listen to someone who's into hip hop or classical music or whatever it is. You know, it's that burning joy you get from someone who's obsessed by music. That really is is just a lovely sound to hear and a lovely thing to be involved Absolutely. with. Absolutely, and most DJs will t will tell you that they're into everything as well, and they are. Um, it's just whether they play everything when they go out. That's yeah, a, that's yeah, that's true. I always uh, there's a lovely uh, meme that goes around the internet of uh, um, someone who's about to be mowed down by a, a charging monster, and it says everyone says they like all sorts of music until the behemoth of free jazz arrives. <laughs> yes, or country. So when we talk about um, taking music and, and rearranging it and making it into something new, it seems fitting now to move on to your first phonographic memory, uh, which is Frankie Goes to Hollywood, uh, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, the LP version. Never before had a band been remixed so often, and, and let's face it, so well. And that really was a game changer. That must have had a big influence on you and who you were to become as a DJ. Slightly, yes. I mean, I, around the time when I first heard Relax, I was starting to make pause button tapes. This is before I actually 
had a turntable even and was a D, you know, wanted to be a DJ. Mm. Uh, and the, you know, the wealth of different versions of Relax meant I had tons of material to basically edit things together. Um, and really when I, I mean, I'm, I've chosen Franco's Hollywood, but really the, the spotlight should shine on ZTT, which yes. is you know, Trevor Horn, Paul Molly Jinks, Jill Sinclair's seminal album, which, you know, Relax and the Art of Noise kicked off in 83, 84. Um, and to me, that was, I mean, Franco's Hollywood weren't my sort of first love. I, re I really loved Adam and the Ants when I was 10. And that was, you know, my first sort of big band. But the package with Franco's Hollywood and ZTT and Trevor and everything was the thing for me. It really made me look at the way a label was constructed, right down to the graphic design um, and the sleeves. And the fact that a lot of the sleeves with ZTT and the label had no picture of the groups on which yeah. in the 80s, in an era of Boy George and Wham and Duran Duran, was a, you know, it was almost like box office disaster. <laughs> you know, it was almost unthinkable. But here was this, he was this newly formed band, newly formed label, sampling, remixing, um, and they were just number one in the charts. And to me, I've been into synth pop and stuff like that. It was very electronic pop as well. And there was something else, there was that magic ingredient. And I, I can only think it was the, some of its parts. It was, you know, Frankie with the band, they wrote the songs, they took it to Trevor and the Art of Noise, they remixed it into these absolute crystal jewels of mm. pop perfection. And then you had Paul Morley and the Excel design team wrapping it all in this gorgeous, mysterious graphic package. Mm. Um, you know, every 12 inch cover was different, every advert for it was different. There were all this, there was all this stuff on the sleeves that had no relation to the song. It wasn't just full of the lyrics or anything like that. It was all these you know, bits of, you know, situationist text. I was like, what is this? You know, it's like, it's like every little release was a piece of a puzzle, a bigger picture. And I, I absolutely loved it and bought straight into it. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things that uh, kind of, it was confusing at the time because, like, especially with the art of noise, because you know there was no there was no picture other than we didn't know who they were, we didn't know what they were. Exactly. And exactly. and the thing about it was that the the technology they were using was so cutting edge. They were doing stuff that literally no one else in the country could do. I think. Absolutely. I think Trevor Horn had one of one of four fair lights in the world at the yeah. time. You know what I mean? So he was doing things with sampling that, of course, is bog standard today and you can you can do it on your phone probably but in those days it was something else to hear a yeah. rhythm made of a car starting and someone farting and whatever you know a tennis match and a tennis <laughs> match yeah but uh, and also i mean i made the connection quite quickly back to um trevor um duck rock malcolm mclaren's duck mm. rock which trevor had produced with a sort of you know fledgling art of noise basically the team was you know assembled to make that album that became the art of noise and um, you know, I'd loved Duck Rock, and again, a really mysterious record that just landed out of nowhere and mashed up all of these crazy, you know, musics and cultures and art. And, you know, the front cover was this weird customized boombox with horns. And, mm. it, you know, it gave us Keith Haring and it gave us hip hop and breakdancing and double dutch and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, wow, this is, this is another whole world. Um, and, and the breakdancing hip hop thing didn't hit me straight away. I was kind of. You know, it was almost like a novelty record, Duck Rock and Buffalo Girls, to me at that point. But but ZTT was so sophisticated in the sort of pop world at that point for me. And the track Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, which is basically the whole side of 
well, suppose on the album, mm. you know, it's 18 minute epic. And it's almost sort of, it's so perfect. And so, I mean, it's a massive cliche that takes you on a journey, but it literally does. And it, it's almost like they play all their aces on the A side with that record because mm. at the end of side one, you're just sort of breathless. It's like, oh my God, this is this is incredible. And then you've got another three sides. And all the hits. And all the hits. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you know, the, the, the A and the B side disc of that album is, is just peerless 80s pop. It's yeah, just, well, suppose them on the A side and then, and then you've got Frankie goes on, uh, you've got Relaxed Two Tribes and War on the B-side, you know, new remixes, all mega mixed together and, you know, with, with so much love and then it's almost like they've shot their load There was so much extra involved in that whole Zang Tum Tum thing. Like, you know, mm. certainly I had never heard of music concrete or any of that surrealist no. stuff before. Um, but I got into it. Do you know what I mean? I liked the little quotes. I, yeah. I, I wanted to I wanted to go to the library and find out what Zang Tum Tum really meant. And well, yes. And, that, and, and then when you did, did, did dig deeper and you, you found out that it was a sort of futurist manifesto thing, you know, uh, the art of noises and all the rest of it. And, mm. you know... Um, I mean, I worked with Paul Morley later. I did a mix in the early noughties around the time when sort of whole bootleg mashup thing was was taking place. And he uh, he came up with this title, Raving the 20th Century, which was going to be the second Art of Noise album. And I stole that, basically made a huge long history of the cut-up, including music, music on crep, early tape edits, mashups, bootlegs, all sorts of things, and got Paul Morley in to sort of narrate it. Because he just put a book out called um, Word to Music, which had tallied so perfectly with some points in in the mix I was making I just thought this is too good an opportunity you know I'm, I'm being sent a sign here and he was he was great about it you know he sat there and he he read off the little things I prepared for him and I plunged them all into the mix and um, and you know that was a real moment for me sort of making that connection and, th and at that point you know the sort of ZTT Frankie reappraisal hadn't really kind of started um, yeah. and it was it was a nice thing to do so, well, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast actually was uh, um, I have seen a couple of sides of you, which to me just show like um, the sort of innocent fascination you get when you're into a type of music. And I love all your writing on your website about the Zhang Tum Tum collecting experience you've been on. Have you have you finished? Have you have you got all of the releases now? No, I haven't. I'm I my my kind of ZTT era is the 80s mm -hmm. going into the 90s there's 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 various phases of ZTT, ZTT if you want to get into the sort of nerd thing of it you've got up until 808 states first record which is kind of ZTT phase one which Paul Morney was very much in control of 
as a press officer and that's where it's really arty mm. and Trevor was doing a lot of the production with Steve Lipson and then then things happen behind the scenes and the, you know Ireland take control and, and or, or they, it gets sold I think Dave Robinson and Stiff and Paul Morley leaves and but signs to 808 State who are then of the leaders of the sort of dance era of the 90s of ZTT. You've got Shades of Rhythm and people like that putting out stuff. And Trevor's less, in, less involved. He's going off and producing Grace Jones and Tom Jones and anyone called Jones. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then it, it's still interesting, but it, it kind of goes down this sort of, you know, very different path, um, which is no less interesting, but it's not really my thing. Mine is really the sort of Paul Morley era of the mm. 80s where I found that they were, they were dealing in the pop charts, but they were dealing with art as well it's very very arty um and i think i've probably got most releases <clears throat> bar the odd very obscure thing you know but um i set up a website called the art of ZTT uh many years ago because when you look through the annals of sort of graphic design history of record sleeves you get peter savile and you get mm. neville Brody and you get Vaughan oliver and all these people but you don't really get excel who were the design team by in the 80s it, um, from ZTT, um, and I always felt they were sort of unfairly ignored because yeah. for me they were massively influential, although I didn't realise it at the time. Well, um, yeah, and like you say, every single release had its own look and feel. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And even the, like the press releases would be different. And the controversy they created as well was just, you know, it was it wasn't just Frankie goes to Hollywood that was controversial. Like everything about it was controversial. Yes, yeah. duel and propaganda was controversial. Absolutely. It was all. It was all kind of, um, it was like one of these sort of high society jokes that were being yeah. played on, on the mainstream, do you know what I mean? Because you had all these like very highbrow references and very interesting visual looks, mm. you know, married to this really, really vibrant brand new music. Yes. It really was the whole package. I can totally understand why you would get totally involved in, in collecting that. And it is, oh, I definitely recommend to any of the listeners to go and, have a have a, pr a a little look at your blog because there's there's a lot of love in those pages. I feel. <laughs> thank you, thank you. There's a lot of love put in there. Probably quite a lot of spelling mistakes as well. <laughs> well, we love those. <laughs> uh, I have to say, uh, the other reason I really want to get you involved uh, with what goes around is because I am a massive the the Matt Johnson fan, and when the re-release of Soul Mining came along, I went to Rough Trade to get my little box set signed. And it was you interviewing Matt Johnson, and you seemed to have a really good rapport with him. And uh, it was just a really great evening of everyone loving his back catalogue, especially Soul yes. Mining. And, it, you know, great, great conversations came out of it. And then I went to see him on the tour a bit later, and you did this fabulous kind of dub version of all of the other's music at once, yes. which was, you know, and that was really interesting in itself because you go to see a band and the support act basically plays their greatest hits. <laughs> well, I was, I was very careful not to play the hits. I did have a set, set list before. Um, yeah. And so I knew, and the idea of that was, uh, I was opening for the there on their comeback tour in uh, 2018 or 19. I can't remember so long ago. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Matt actually called me up and he said, right, I'm, I'm going to play live again, but I don't want to have a support band. I want to have some, creating an atmosphere and you're the person to do that i think because we've known, yeah. we've known each other nearly 20 years at this point uh through various different reasons um and immediately we're on the same page and i said what if i create an ambient soundtrack which was basically 
all the, the obscurities from your back catalogue, all the B-sides, all the film yeah. score stuff, you know, the stuff that's lesser known, but still has your imprint on it. And, and I'll, I'll mash it all together into this, you know, this sound field, a, a bit like the KLF's Chill Out, but mm. using the, the obscure material as, and he, as the bed. And, and he said, yeah, that's great. Go yeah, on. and it, it, was, it was wonderful. It really, really worked well. Thank I really, you. really enjoyed it. And through seeing you on those two occasions, I just saw the love that you had for the the and the oh, music. Yeah, and your yeah. second choice is Heartland by the the. Now I know you probably could have chosen almost any track, but uh, yeah. what? Why? How did we end up with Heartland? I mean, it's it's almost impossible. It could be in any the the track. And I and I literally went through every album and thought, what can I play? There is there is nothing that defines the the. I mean, Heartland is definitely one of their probably most famous and most loved songs and lyrically it's so prescient mm. i mean it's it's as relevant today to the nth degree as it was back then it's and you know matt's lyrics are just so he's so economical but and it takes him a bloody long time to write that yeah, stuff yeah. as well but, but yeah when he nails it he absolutely nails it this is the land This is the place where pensioners are raped and their hearts are being cut from the welfare state. Let the poor drink the milk while the rich eat the honey. Let the bums count their blessings while they count the money. listened to that song before and been in tears because it's so true it's you know the cranes are moving on the skyline trying to knock down this town things yeah. like that living about talking about london obviously and but and, and even more so these days it's it's such a prescient song yeah and he's he, he really loves london as well it's kind of in his absolutely. bones isn't it and uh, i know oh, he, he's done a lot of work trying to preserve shoreditch from becoming the costa del essex and uh you know, trying to keep some of the character of the old place. Unfortunately, yeah, fighting a losing battle. I mean, he still lives in Shoreditch, yeah. right in the middle of Shoreditch, actually, and has since the mid-80s before, well, long, long before it was, you know, a destination. And just he, as much as anyone, has seen what's happened to that area of London. And I have to sort of, I almost feel guilty because I have to kind of throw my hands up a little and say I was probably probably helped some of that gentrification in some ways because when we did the stealth club at the blue note in the mm. mid 90s ninja tune um you know none of us had been to the east end before none of us had been to hoxton or shoreditch before and we didn't know what that place was and it was a sort of you know cultural wasteland it was you know full of old sort of 
um, textile places. Yeah, there's a lot of empty buildings, isn't there? Uh, absolutely, yeah. And and the Blue Note was really the sort of beacon that brought everyone over to East London and showed them this area. And we had a monthly club called Stealth in the in 80, 80, 85 to 87. Uh, sorry, 95 to 97 there. Um, along with, you know, Goldie's Metalheads and My Wax Had a Night, Dusted, and Wall of Sound and everyone. And, you know, we brought, you know, a lot of people to East London and kind of helped start off that little chain of chain reaction in some ways. I know the, the YBA artists have been there a little before and, and mm. moved in and, and stuff, but it was like, oh man, I see what's happened to it now. And it's, 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 it's a pale imitation of what it used to be. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole, the whole, especially Hoxton Square, which was mm. like, you know, a fairly run down old, old soggy bit of grass with, yeah. with some dogs and tramps on. And now Absolutely. it's, uh, you know, million pound houses all around, all around the square. So I love Matt. I mean, just, uh, just to, to go back to when yeah. I first heard the, the, it was in the late late 80s, I was in sixth form and a friend of mine um, gave me a cassette, a C45, C90 cassette. And on one side was soul mining, or most of it, it couldn't fit it quite on. And the other side was infected. I mean, if you want to start with other, yeah. just start with those two albums because they are absolutely blinding and a, and a year later mind bomb came out and that was just oh my goodness you know I, I was a fan for life after hearing that first those first two albums and then i just sought out everything yeah and it's really interesting that sort of the again matt johnson's one of those people who you can really easily classify him in the wrong way do you know what i mean it's like, like a lot of people imagine that a are like some sort of indie band, do you know what I mean? And I, I guess in some ways they are. They, 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 they write their music mostly on guitars and keyboards and stuff like that. But they also use drum machines, and oh, they, you know. And Matt Johnson, when I when I saw him live last um, that evening at Brixton Academy, he was saying, "I've always considered it to be a dance band. I've always considered it to be a, a band that you go out and you dance in a club to." Yes. And if you listen to the the rhythms and the production on things like soul mining and and uh, infected you can hear it actually it makes perfect sense but, oh, absolutely but, yeah, and also not only was he innovating in that way but then when he did the videos for infected like a whole album yeah. in video which I think nearly bankrupted everyone involved. But, yeah. <laughs> but my God, what a piece of work. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, he was hanging out with Steve-O and, and Soft Cell and, and Jim Thurwell and all that lot from Sun Bazaar in the 80s. And they mm. were going over to New York. And I mean, they were doing, you know, I don't think it's a secret that they were doing ecstasy in the very early 80s when mm. it was still legal in New York. And, and, you know, that whole camp was, you know, quite rife with chemicals and uh he said to me when you know acid house came along i couldn't really see what the big deal was because we've been doing this years before <laughs> you know and um yeah but totally you know he used to work in a library uh, um for a library um company in not a book library music library in uh i think it's water street or Berwick street and you know using tape machines early tape machines to make loops and stuff and he's always kept his hand in with this thing he's got a synth room in his studio he's got little modular gear and all sorts of stuff you know he's definitely not you know classic indie guy he's a he's a, he's a demon in the studio with with the stuff he's got there racks and racks of filters and analog kit stuff like mm. that you know he's always interested in new technology as well you know what can this do what can that do 
Yeah, it's really he's a real innovator and, and one who uh, I just I just want a little bit more out of him. I want yes. that new album so badly. Yeah, he's so, very slow, but yeah, he's, he's like he's slow and methodical. But it's not the give him a nudge from us, Kev. I'm actually seeing him on Sunday, so yeah, I will. Oh, superb, superb. So again, uh, another really classic uh, touchstone for a lot of people um, is your third choice, the Beastie Boys. So what you want? I mean, well, you tell us why the Beastie Boys and and how did your love for this record come about? The Beastie Boys, again, you know, it could be any record, it could be any album pretty much, but the Beastie Boys have sort of been with me for most of my life since I was a teenager. And, you know, I heard them from their first single, you know, um, Slow and Low, Holding Out, Hit It, and all those. I saw them open for Run DMC and Ella um, Houdin uh, in 86, the Def Jam tour, Hammersmith yeah. Odeon. You know, they just did two records. This was before... License to Will was even released. They just yeah. did slow and low and hold it out, hit it, and they were crazy. And it was like, oh wow, that was that was fun. You know, these three guys literally just leaping around on stage, beard up and ranting and shouting. It's like, oh okay. Um, and a lot of people talk about Bowie, and they talk about, oh, I've, you know, Bowie's been with me my whole life, and you know, I grew up with his songs and things like that. And I'm not saying the Beastie Boys are my Bowie, but they're the nearest sort of equivalent to something that has sort of been there my whole life in different forms and when MCA died I was genuinely upset mm. I, you know I just thought wow I'm never going to hear a Beastie Boys record again you know in the same way and there's not yeah. any new Beastie Boys stuff and, and, and you know it felt like losing somebody who had been with you along with the ride because they're only a couple of years older than me yeah. and um, you know I'd seen them I'd seen them on the License to Will tour I'd seen them on they didn't do a Paul's Boutique one but they'd, I'd seen them on Check Your Head I'd seen them on Ill Communication and then I ended up supporting them on the Hello Nasty tour at the Bristol uh, Academy. How was that? You know, that was amazing. <laughs> I mean, it was terrifying as well, but it was, and I, I, if I'm honest, I couldn't really enjoy the gig because I was on after them. They had a whole raft of people on that bill. It was incredible. It was the Bristol Academy and they opened with uh, Money Mark and Kid Koala. Really? Then they had the Invisible Scratch Pickles. Then they played. And then they had an after party, which was on the stage. It's like the, they kept the you know the the Brixton Academy open after wow. they done they they departed stage and it was the executioners Rock Raider and and, and Mr Sinister and then it was me and all <laughs> four decks and then it was and then it was the Scratch Perverts and oh then my it was God. ended with Alec Empire oh really which was amazing mental I mean, what, absolute floor clearer but yeah, <laughs> I think that yeah. was the intention by that yeah. point it, but, he's, um, he's a long term pod want I'd love to have him on the oh, pod yeah, I'm sure what a do. crazy audio terrorist he is but um. so, so going from this you know being a fan in the audience to sort of being actually on stage with them you know and hanging out backstage at British Academy having dinner with Mixed Master Mike and Kid Koala really? and then MCA sitting on the next table going alright and it was just like, oh, wow, this is just too weird. You know, this is really, this is, I've arrived here, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, and then later when, when at Serbia MCA died, I was putting together a sort of a, a long freeform mix of all the original samples of Paul's Boutique with uh, other DJs, Bristol DJs, um, Chiba and uh, DJ Money Shop. And we sort of had this little project on the go for about two years, actually. It was really taking us a long time. We found basically all the, the original tracks that they'd sampled on Paul's Boutique, which mm. was one of our favourite albums. And we decided to make a big, long mashup DJ mix called 
called Caught in the Middle of a Three-Way Mix, um, where we all took a few tracks each and we basically mashed it all up. And, you know, when, when MCA died, this was about three three quarters finished. We're like, oh, man, we, we've got to finish this now. You know, yeah. This is, a, this is yeah. turning into a tribute now. We put it out and we got something like 100,000 listens in a week or something wow. crazy, which was just insane. You know, but it was a sort of kind of bittersweet thing to do at the end. But we toured that. That was really nice. We toured that on four decks as well and with visuals as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it was kind of... Obviously, it's really sad the, the way it has to end, but it, it was kind of perfect as well that they... They look because he really was the heart and soul of of the group. I think, yeah. and uh, I the, mean, you found that out now. I think at the time, yeah, yeah. That's it, the thing. It was really you good. kind of didn't know how it all worked, but then uh, that wonderful uh, documentary they did, sort of the live presentation mm-hmm. show uh, for Apple TV, yeah. where they just go through their career and show all the the great yeah. footage and tell all the stories. But you do realize how important he was, and and what a what an amazing kind of free spirit and free thinker he was. And, and when you look at where, I can remember like all the initial controversy and people ripping badges yeah. off cars and all that sort of stuff. And that was mental. I did all that too. Yeah. <laughs> and then, but then there was this period where they were kind of persona non grata. And look, Paul's Boutique has become this cult classic, but no one bought it when it came out. You know, no. it, it absolutely sunk without a trace. I loved it though. I, I was just like, why isn't everyone freaking out about this? It's an interesting like, thing, isn't it? Because it is a, so forward and it is so prevalent to what came afterwards in, is, in hip-hop. And also one of the la- last great sample albums in terms of, you know, being made pretty much 100% of samples mm. and something that they address later and, <clears throat> you know, when they went on to check your head, they'd kind of they were, they were sampling, but they was playing on it. And it was, they were always so prescient. And I think that 90s iteration of the Beasties, especially around the Check Your Head and Ill Communication albums, was that was when they really crystallised and they became the band that people loved these days because yeah. you had everything from, you know, kind of punk rock, thrash stuff, funk jams, tripped out stuff, you know, trip hop. didn't want to be part of the Beasties gang. Yeah, what would yeah. you have given to hang out in their studio and they've got a skate ramp and they've got a basketball hoop and they're, they're putting out a magazine, Grand Royal, and they've got a clothing line and they're hanging out The with magazine was fantastic. The magazine well. was, I mean, I learned so much from Grand Royal. Yeah. You know, all that stuff about the Moog records and, and you know, you got MCA doing sort of vegetarian cooking recipes and stuff like that. <laughs> and, you know, snowboarding and all you know they were all just so bloody cool and yeah. you know what would you have given to be a fly on the wall in some of those little sessions and stuff it would have been amazing yeah i mean just in terms of like turning around their story arc and 
Yeah. And not only coming back to commercial success, which was great, but they also address the misunderstandings of their beery youth. Do you know what I mean? Yes. They weren't... Definitely. A lot of artists will do something that is a bit cringy later on. Most artists will then draw a line under that and never talk of it again and try and pretend it didn't happen. But what yeah. was great about the Beastie Boys is they addressed those things. Yes. And they said, to be honest, we were a bit sexist and that was a bit shit. You know, uh, we, we, you know we didn't come across... We didn't want you to go out and smash up cars. We didn't want that. What we wanted is a big party. And the yeah. way they addressed it, and certainly by the time um, uh, Ill Communication came out, we have, you know... A, four-minute track of Buddhist chanting. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, yeah, the eco-concerns at that point, you know, yeah. uh, as a yeah. message in hip-hop. And, and, you know, and I would class the Beastie Boys as a hip-hop group, but they were, they're wider than that, aren't they, really? They, they touch a lot more bases as well. But, yeah, yeah, um, yeah I, 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 I just, you know, they're just a sort of constant there. They're just a, they're a touchstone. And, you know, Check Your Head was, I don't know how many years it was, it was the other day. When it was released, and I, was, I went back and had a listen. I was like, "Oh God, this is so good!" Still does it's it. It's so good. And at that time in my life as well, actually, when Check Your Head came out, I was penniless. Uh, I was a art student. I just finished my sort of first long-term relationship with this girlfriend and broken up. And I was living in a little flat. And I was very much at a sort of turning point in my life. And I was, I had that on my Walkman, and I was hoofing all around South London trying to find a job, basically, for the summer. And it, it really was a soundtrack to that sort of summer of 92. And, uh, you know, it always brings me back there. Oh, fabulous. And how lovely that you can have, um, you know, a real love and a joy like that and then end up, as you say, you know, sharing a table with them and playing with them. Although I have to say, looking at that lineup, I think I might have chickened out of that one. <laughs> I was absolutely bringing it. I'm not going to lie. Um, you know, and... But, you know, I was there. I've, I've got the photos. I've got a backstage photo of us, not with the Beasties, but with all the other DJs. And, you know, I've got my name on the, on the I've got the poster on my wall and I've got the backstage, backstage pass and all that. And, yeah. Uh, you know, it's a little memory. And it's lovely the way, you know, it, these people we talk about, really, all of your choices in some ways, uh, you know, from Zang Tum Tum to Matt Johnson to the Beastie Boys, they're all about constantly evolving and, and constantly picking up different pieces of culture. Yeah. And Matt Johnson might do it through the technology uses in the, in the mix and through the, the lyrics and the, the, the zeitgeisty lines that he picks out, which yeah. still hold up to this day. And certainly, you know, Zang Tum Tum was all about not even just uh, a wide range, but like a, a, a literally a surrealist range of things. It could be anything that came yeah. into that thing. And the Beastie Boys had this wonderful, eclectic way of pulling things together and always evolving and never never repeating themselves in the same way. Yeah. And I think um, you, as a, as a producer, uh, you're always looking for that next thing still, aren't you? I mean, Absolutely. I, I really yeah. need to know a little bit about some of your pet projects. We talked a little bit about the VJing, but what is that weird four-needle turntable that you've got? <laughs> Uh, that's the Quadrophon. I, bought, I built that in uh, 2019 as an idea. Uh, I wanted to turn my DJing practice into more of a performance. Yeah. Again, partly, partly later I realised because watching DJs is so boring. Yeah. Um, but um, the turntable's been my instrument since I was, you know, started DJing, and I, I'm not, I, you know, I can't play another instrument. It's, it's always been there. It's always even when I went digital, mm. I used Serato and I controlled it from the turntable. 
Um, but I've wanted to get into a space somewhere between the arts house and the club dance floor for a long time uh, and make something where I'm literally creating a track live yeah. on a turntable. And what I do with that is I've got four arms, one's attached to the turntable already, three are floating, uh, they, they actually move on a little rail. And I'm playing locked groove records, which are in infinite grooves. Um, so, you know, you've just literally got a loop, a drum loop, let's say, going round and round, and you put the needle in it, and it just sticks, and it just repeats. And I've got many, many records I've collected over the years with locked grooves on them, some with multiples. So if you put, you know, the four arms on four different lock groups, you've got four different loops going. And once you line them all up, um, you can create rhythms and atmospheres incredibly quickly. And um, that's kind of what I'm doing. And then feeding them through different channels. So it's like you've got a little four loop sampler on a turntable mm. and feeding that through effects and, and basically building up and breaking down what is essentially, it turns out to be techno because um, uh, a lock groove on 33 RPM is 133 beats per minute. Of course, yeah, got yeah. clean a clean loop, so it's very electro, very techno, very acid, sort of based in in terms of tempo, um, and yeah, just been absolutely loving that. It's a bit of a beast to control. Yeah, I'll uh, bet. I love the <laughs> fact you know it, one of the reasons I used to really enjoy Aphex Twin early on was because. Mm you would sometimes see him literally soldering things together 10 minutes before the gig and, you know, put it on. And I love the fact that you've gone out and you made this. This is like a, yeah, this is like a mechanical it's... thing. You could have like just had four loops from a sampler, um, whatever. But... Yeah. yeah, you could do it incredibly easily on Ableton, yeah. <laughs> but that, this is the thing. It's like, uh, also, I, I, you know, I'm always into custom things. I'm always into collage. And I'm into having something which... Maybe no one has got quite this thing. There are, there's been precedents for this before, and other people have done similar things, not mm. quite exactly like this. But um, uh, yeah, I, I kind of like having something unique. And let's face it, in today's atmosphere and culture, uh, you've got so much to fight against in terms of the tidal wave of information mm. being thread to you, thread to you every day. How are you going to stand out? You know, I've been DJing for you know, as we said, you know, 35 years odd, and I can do that. And that's fine, and I do enjoy that still, but it doesn't tax me in the way that it used to. And I always need something to tax me, whether that's a new musical genre to explore or a new technology to explore. You know, when I when I started using digital stuff in 2006, it was great. It was like, oh, there's a whole new world here. Yeah. That's, I'm not, I'm not, I can start doing my own re-edits. I can, I can layer things up. I can put effects on, you know, on the fly and all this sort of stuff. And then video came along and, oh, there's another whole thing. And then I actually went back to vinyl seven inches, um, you know, sort of in the late, late, late 20, the, the teens or whatever, whatever you call it. Um, and that was a whole new thing. Oh, I'm back into vinyl now and it's seven inches and it's actually really, really DJ, difficult to DJ with seven inches, but it's a whole new thing. And then now there's this quadriform turntable to, to, you know, find my way around. Yeah. It, keeps, it keeps you fresh and it keeps you inspired, or me anyway. I yeah, I, I, love I love that. I love that. It's really nice to, you know, I can, again, I can hear the kind of enthusiasm for just doing what you do in your voice. Yeah. So what's, what's next for you? What, what, what projects are you looking forward to now? Oh my goodness. Um, well, I've got a little label called Infinite Electric on Bandcamp, which I've got all my Quadrophon experiments on. Um, that's all digital, it's not really a release. Um, I'm working on a multitude of books at the moment. I put a book out last year called Wheels of Light, which was about uh, 
light show effects wheels. <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> that's a whole, good good title then. Whole other thing there. Um, going back to the psychedelic light shows because I'm I'm a real fan of psychedelia in general yeah, and counterculture yeah. and um, yeah, there's a whole book of these you know literally ancient and now largely outmoded effects wheels from the. 70s and 80s uh, which I put together from a big archive of artwork of which I'm still cataloguing and I'm researching a second book based off of that um, I'm doing another researching another book about music packaging because I'm also a graphic designer that's something we haven't covered uh, and I'm designing record sleeves for various different labels including Detuned obviously Ninja Tune I'm doing a lot of the retro releases and I'm designing Zoetrope picture discs for various oh people, wicked I love that another thing uh, sort of a, another ancient analogue method of animation um, which you can wrap around a picture disc and then film and it animates fabulous fabulous so, <laughs> well I hope you stay as curious in the future as you are up to this point it's been lovely talking to you Kev yeah, I've you really too, enjoyed it yeah. and uh, I wish you all the best with your sonic experiments and book writing thank you Thank you so much for coming on What Goes Thanks. Around. Thanks for having me. I've loved it. Thank you very much for listening to What Goes Around podcast. We really appreciate your ears. And if you have any friends or relatives who also have ears and could do with some wide-ranging musical chat, please let them know about us. And like and subscribe. The more likers and subscribers we get, the closer to heaven we feel. We love you. Bye-bye.